How's it going? This is Andy Kelly, Water's Edge Church. It's Palm Sunday, April 10th. Hope you're having an awesome ride as you listen to this or walk or jog. Thanks for joining. Now, the title, the title of today's message is Generous King, Generous People. And a few weeks back, I prepared a message on generosity for our series that's been in the Sermon on the Mount. And in that moment, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit instead to pray and grieve and actually have one of our leaders, Larry, give us a word of encouragement in the midst of grief. And I was excited about the sharing about generosity because I believe it is the call rooted in Jesus' kingdom gospel. There's principles within in terms of giving uh, and simplicity and walking with others that is so critical to being the church. And as I sat with that and surrendered that message that day and prepared for this week, I just asked God, hey, May I share that message today? And I sense from the Lord that he said, yes, but let's illustrate it through the lens of Palm Sunday. Let's illustrate it through the lens of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem the week he gives his life for our behalf, the week that he gives. So as we prepare our hearts, Lord, I do ask that words of my mouth and meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, God, O rock, my redeemer. May I speak to an audience of one. Maybe we live for an audience of one and therefore be free to love others. Pray this in Jesus' name. The question is, what stirs in you as we talk about generosity in the church? What emotions are evoked when that happens? There tend to be a myriad amount of emotions that happens with this topic. Sometimes there's shame, shame about debt that we may be in, or shame about our budget or lack thereof, budget shame of not knowing exactly where the money comes from. Well, we know where it comes from, but where it's going typically. There's resentment that are going to arise uh, as a result of us trying to get by. Look, I'm just looking for a job. I, I want a home. Worry can sink in because you feel like you could never get to that next spot that you believe you want to be. Uh, that you believe finances and money can get you to, having significant savings, buying a home. And it's definitely a bit worrisome these days as gas prices are shooting up the cost of food, whether it be a burrito, whether it be a burger, a banh mi sandwich. They've almost doubled. Home prices, rental market can feel unattainable, and that evokes worry, understandably. Feelings arise, more feelings, envy for what other people have and you don't have. There's hostility when it comes to money and relationships, family relationships. Maybe there's hostility towards the church. And I think what where we all want to be is not to have much feeling at all when it comes to money, to, to see it for what it truly is. It's a tool, a medium, uh, in many ways a means to, to love well, to have a holy indifference, maybe a joyful gratitude for the way that God provides, but not to have to cling to that gratitude either way. It's just to have it freely and to give it freely. I mean, many of us have feelings when it comes to money, and I know a lot of us have questions also when it comes to money. How does kingdom economics work? I think most of us are mature enough to denounce this prosperity gospel where you hear the televangelists say, if you give 10,000 tonight to our cause. You're going to have 100,000 by the end of this month or this week. It's like, nah, that's not true. And we laugh, but when you read scripture, sometimes it can feel like there's this 
instantaneous liquid return that's going to happen. 2 Corinthians 9.6 Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. I mean, even Jesus says in Luke 6.38 Give and it will be given to you. You read Proverbs like Proverbs 19.17 If we're kind to the poor, God will reward us. And I, years ago, I remember believing to some degree that there would be a return. I wanted to head into ministry roughly 14 years ago. And I knew I had to raise my support, and I'd be doing that for a journey of five years, asking people to support my journey into ministry. It was part of the graduate internship I had at Flood, Flood Church, our sending church. And at that same time, an investment came in front of me uh, in a technology, and it seemed like a very credible investment. It came to me through my family. I invested half my retirement believing like, oh, this is the answer. I won't need to raise support. This investment's going to carry me through ministry. And it was going very well until one person was found to be a criminal within that organization and leaked the information to competitors. It was a technology that was leaked to competitors, and it became a tragedy, yes, for investors, but also those who were creating the tech, those who were working without pay. It was just a very rough situation. And case in point, this idea of, yeah, because I'm committing to raising support, God's going to somehow miraculously take care of me right away. That did not come to fruition. It didn't work out. But I also would remiss to say that I also need to say that God has provided in tremendous ways in the last 15 years. I've met some of the most generous people when I raised support. It's incredible. So, is there a kingdom ROI and how does that work? That's a question we have. As followers of Jesus, we have a lot of questions. How are we to understand consumerism and marketing? What is the call to poverty? Am I the, quote, rich young ruler in Luke 18, where Jesus says, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me? What does accountability and support look like in the area of finances? It's one of those conversations that's pretty quiet in the church. Do we talk about it? How do we talk about it? There's a lot of questions we have. I think this... Last question is what matters the most. How can I, how can we, Water's Edge, we grow in the area of generosity? Generosity matters to God. So how do we grow into God's generous people? Jesus does tell a larger crowd in Luke 12, 33, that they are to sell their possessions to give to the poor. It's not just this rich young ruler. He does say, didn't say sell all the possessions like he does a rich young ruler, but he says to give. This isn't just a single moment. It's, it's written over the scope of scripture, generosity. It's better to give and receive. That's Jesus' words that Paul states in Acts 20, 35. It's a value to God. When you look at the scope of scripture, generosity is a value to God. And part of our growth is to be generous. No one's going to argue with that. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that original Palm Sunday, he's initiating this final week of his life where he will give his life for our sake. God is generous. He is a giver. God is a lover. Therefore, God gives. I mean, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount we've been talking about in this series for the last Goodness, seven or eight weeks, I mean, since we began the year, is that 
when we receive Jesus' love, we love Jesus, we learn to be with Jesus, and we become like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So how do we grow in generosity? And I believe if we grow in this conversation, the answers to our questions come over time. I think the word growth is very helpful. Growth doesn't mean excellence right away. It doesn't mean perfection really at all. I don't need to be perfect today or tomorrow when it comes to generosity. Growth means there's freedom. If I'm growing, uh, there's freedom in this. There's freedom to try it. There's freedom to fail at it and therefore try again. There's freedom not to have all the answers around them right away. There's freedom to be expected with how God will meet us. <clears throat> with freedom comes trust. With growth comes trust. And God wants to grow us in this. God wants us to experience financial freedom. Financial freedom. Now that's a popular term that you hear throughout society today. And there's a lot of people who speak about financial freedom. A few definitions. Dave Ramsey, financial peace founder, the one who tells us to act our wage, he defines financial freedom as the means that you get to make a life. You get to make life decisions without being overly stressed about the financial impact because you are prepared. Forbes writes an article about financial freedom, kind of balking at defining it, but essentially stating Ultimately, financial freedom means you're in control of your finances and therefore your life choices. Money Fit Academy writes that financial freedom usually means having enough savings, financial investments, and cash on hand to afford the kind of life that you and we desire for ourselves and those around us, our family, our friends, what have you. Major theme in those definitions is that your money is working for you and yours rather than the other way around. And there are really great suggestions and processes that come with this financial freedom in terms of setting goals and creating a budget, which is hugely important, paying down debt, savings, then the conversation goes into insurances and living below your means, finding your vocational sweet spot, being healthy, your passions, your focuses. And maybe there's a moment in the end where there's a conversation about philanthropic options or giving typically happens at the end. Biblical financial freedom, though not completely different, is not the same as it. Because there's great principles there, but those principles focus on me, focus on you. Biblical financial freedom is, is different. It's the great commandments to love God and love others. Financial freedom is a subset of that. It becomes it means becoming faithful stewards of God's provision in our lives in order to honor, glorify God, and love others. Biblical financial freedom means becoming faithful stewards of God's provision in our lives. It's God who provides in our lives in order to honor God, to glorify God, and to love others. To love others. And that does mean loving those who are very close to you. This does not mean that you ignore your Family obligations. That would be counter scriptural. Uh, Bill and Vanette Bright, they're the founder of Crew. They wrote the Jesus or helped create and produce the Jesus film in 1979. They rightly state that financial freedom means having enough to 
to adequately provide for your home, your household, and to give generously and joyfully. I think it's a huge word, joyfully, to the work of God. God wants us to live peacefully and avoid pitfalls. But God also knows the greatest pitfall we face regarding finances is our chronic self-interest. And therefore, the call is to biblical financial freedom. Our greatest pitfall is our chronic self-interest. And Jesus wants us to be a people who are not tied to supporting ourselves, but rather being free to live for the sake of others. Less selfish people prosper more in relationships. It is better to give than to receive. Jesus was the most generous person that walked the earth. He also was the most joyful person. And there is a complete correlation to those two things. So the question really is, what is the path towards true financial freedom? What is the path towards true financial freedom? And this is, we're going to head back into the Sermon on the Mount and look at three analogies that Jesus mentions. It's two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. What is the path towards true financial freedom? Let's read God's word. Do not store up for yourselves. This is Matthew 6, 19 to 24, by the way. Let's read. Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vernum destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vernum do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's God's word for us. Again, what is the path towards true financial freedom? The first point and the first step is to implement faithful giving. To implement faithful giving. The major note here is this is the first step. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vernum destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Do not, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vernum do not destroy, and where thieves do not break and steal. He makes this amazing statement, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. In Christ's economy, there are two types of treasures, two types of expenditures that one can store up. One is treasures in heaven, investments that seemingly matter, especially matter more. Or treasures on earth, investments that matter less, significantly less. And as we consider, what then are our treasures in heaven? Well, that's namely our investment in people and their well-being now. Whenever we talk about heaven, heaven's not about this pie in the sky after fact. Matthew in his gospel talks about the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of God, is here. It's now upon you. It's here right now where we learn to serve God and love others. And our investments in others is our treasures in heaven. That's when we read the Sermon on the Mount. The focus is on others, whether it comes to anger or murder, adultery, lying, gossip, when it comes to purity and marriage, when it comes to revenge and justice, when it comes to loving both our neighbor and our neighbor who is our enemy. Or rather, let me say this another way, when it comes to loving our neighbor and our enemy who is our neighbor, the focus is people. I mean, when you look later on in Jesus's final words uh, in 
his final teaching, Matthew 25, before he takes on the cross, he talks about these parable of talents, this money is given. And he follows that parable with a parable of sheep and goats, where judgment really uh, is a response to our response to God's love and how we care wantingly about the least of these, how we care for others, whether we give a cup of water to somebody, whether we give a bed, whether we visit someone in prison, whether we help others. Jesus' main refrain to serve the Mount is that we need to see the world in light of being a sister and brother. These are our sisters and brothers, whether they believe in God or not. And when we read about vermin and moths, treasures on earth, conversely, are these investments in objects and their eventual waste. Investments in possessions eventually equals junk. That's what treasures on earth is, junk. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be is. It will be focused on junk or will be focused on joy of investing in others. Investments in heaven equals people plus investment, which equals joy. Investment on earth is possessions plus time, which equals junk. We focus our investments on people. We're focusing on God. There's an inseparable reality to all that. The early beauty of the beginning of Holy Week is the response of the crowd. They laid down their cloaks, their outer garments on the road. As if they heard Jesus' teaching, they generously give up their cloak. They're immediately investing in the work of God. They're honoring and glorifying God. Now, I think many of us can be like, well, these are the same people who stripped Jesus, uh, or at least called the Romans to strip Jesus on a cross, to take his cloak and have him hung naked there. And I would say, yes, that is true. But at the same time, those people who crucified Jesus are the same people who also, many of them, not all of them, recognize him as the risen Savior as the one who gave for the forgiveness of their sins and my sins and our sins, and then learned a life of giving and sharing with those in need. All I can say is when we give and when we talk about giving, these are seed planting opportunities. I also want to say the joy of giving comes from the giving itself. So a practical application when it comes to giving when we read the scripture, is to practice percentage giving. Percentage giving means giving a percentage of your income towards the work of God. And the work of God is certainly multifaceted. But what we need to know is in Jesus' day, almsgiving was a religious duty, not a philanthropic option. Society was built around giving to the poor and supporting the work of God. It came by giving a percentage of your income, a sort of first fruits before you invest elsewhere. It was a recognition that God is a provider that, and that you trust will God will continue to provide. And society today will tell you it's your first investment is the most important. As followers of Jesus, we are investing in God's work because we recognize that that is the most important investment. So, again, why does beginning with giving matters so much? Well, it breaks the chains of bondage that the world wants to place on us. The world says, hey, you're going to need this. You need that. You have to have this kind of car, this kind of home, this kind of locale. Your kids need this kind of toy or enrichment or camp. It's 
a recognition that the world's fundamentally designed to take our money. And when we give, we're saying, yeah, this money never was truly ours. It was, it was given to us to steward. It's an opportunity to practice love. And we find satisfaction in that opportunity. There's actually a lasting satisfaction that's found there that cannot be found elsewhere. Now for years, I've practiced uh, what many call the 10-10-80 rule. It's where you have 10% giving, 10% savings. And actually for us, it's 10% tithe to the church and generosity beyond that. So we don't limit to the 10%. And I don't say that to brag, that's just something we practice. It was something given to me through some disciples in my life. Of course, 10% savings. And I, I think when people hear that, just hear that word 10%, it can feel like a lot. And it may be a stretch for some. Frankly, it may be too little for some. The question is, when you hear that, what is God saying to you? And real talk, it is a stretch. It is hard to give. Uh, we missed a month last month because of some certain finances and whatnot. And I made up for it this month by paying for April and March, our tithe. And I felt that. You feel that when you give. You're like, I wish it was a time. And there are a lot of times I don't feel it, actually. That's the goal. But for some reason, I felt it this time. I was like, man, we could really go on vacation with that. And um, that's just a reality. But at the same time, once you write that check, there's a freedom once you just go online and fill out, there's a freedom that comes. And whenever this topic comes up, whenever I'm studying it or processing it, it's not like something I talk about all the time, as you all know. I probably can grow in talking about it more. The response I hear from a lot of people is not resistance as much as like, yeah, I know I should give. I, I want to give. We really want to start giving. And that's what I hear, but I'm not, I don't police giving. I don't know who gives. Or I guess I do know because I have to write thank yous, but I don't know the amounts that people give. I think for those who want to but are struggling with it, I would just commend you to start giving something. To start giving something. Scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver, that we want to give cheerfully. And if you don't feel like giving cheerfully, talk to God about it. Now, as I say that, maybe it's uh, your utmost conviction, and I haven't been explicit about this, but when I tithe, I do tithe to the church. We like to give 10% to the church and generosity beyond that. It may be your utmost conviction that the tithe doesn't belong to the local church. And rather than get into a loaded conversation about that, because I know I'm a pastor who works for a local church and that can feel loaded, I would commend you to still give financially and substantially, percentage-wise, toward an organization or collective cause that seeks God's kingdom. I would commend you to still give to something that you know God is about. I'm going to read a couple verses. This couple, everybody kept asking me about this. Not everybody. Two or three people brought it up. You should read Malachi 3. And it is true. Malachi has a great word about God commending us to tithe. It says in Malachi 3.10, Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. 
Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. I'll just stop there. When it comes to Jesus, there's only one concrete moment where he speaks in the tithe and he's uh, basically instructing uh, the teachers of the law. He's, he's, he's saying, woe to them, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You do give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill and cumin, but you've neglected the most important matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. There seems to be some sort of affirmation of giving of these first fruits. But I think like when we when you parse apart verses like this, I think we miss the foundation of the early church. When you look at verses like Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the apostles and all the believers were together and everything they had was in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts to worship. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. And then there's a almost repetitive section in Acts 4. I'll read Acts 4.32, that all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed to have any of the possessions of their own, but they shared everything they had. It's as if that 10% is the minimum biblical standard, which it truly is. So here's a fun prayer parent share. Discuss percentage given. What are you drawn to? What are you resistant to? Have a conversation with others. And you don't need to speak personally. Let's discuss the topic. It's hard not to speak personally, but let's talk about it. Generosity is something that Jesus talked about more than anything else. So let's try that. And maybe you're listening to this right now. Listen. Have a listen. Not listen, talk about it. Talk to God about it. What's the path to true financial freedom? It's to implement faithful giving, and it is, this is very important too, to simplify our living. Matthew 6, 22 to 23 says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. Now, what is going on with this strange metaphor? Simply stated, Jesus is telling us is that money, and particularly materialism, it can blind us. Money and materialism certainly can blind us. The eye is the lamp for the body. The more we fixate on the objects that we possess or that we don't possess but we should possess or must possess, the more unhealthy darkness infiltrates our bodies. When we focus on needing some type of possession, our inner world gets darker. It's as if what we're looking at is actually lighting or dimming our body. One of the beauties of Jesus' triumphal entry is Jesus' simplicity. As the prophet Zechariah predicts, he writes on, a donkey, a gentle donkey, and, and not a war horse. And, and this donkey symbolizes humility and peace of this servant king. It symbolizes the simplicity of a servant king. There's no banners or fireworks. There's just people singing. People singing. 
simplicity. We have a simple king. We take communion together around a table. And that is where life is. We may not believe it, but the dinner table filled with empty plates and full bellies and sharing of stories and laughter among friends is better than any automobile, home purchase, exotic vacation, or electronic device there is. The greatest gifts in our lives are those that we truly don't possess, namely God and others. Cars, houses, they all go. People, they, they last forever. They truly do. It's just our eyes that need some work. Time to go to the optometrist. And Jesus stays someone who looked out for the poor. Someone who looked out for others is one to be known to have a healthy eye. And he compares unhealthy eyes who look out for their own stuff. This is why giving is so necessary. And this is why simplicity is so necessary because then we can give more. We're able to give more if we have less. And when, when, we, when we give, it breaks the chains that material has, has upon us. And when we live simply, it opens the door to the prison so that we can walk out freely. Since it's so tempting to get our identity from what we buy and sell, simplicity says you have less so you can truly have more. More what? More time, more space with others. Our stuff is our greatest killer of time. We fasted all week, and, and part of fasting is that you go without to recognize that you have so much, that you forego things so that you can spend time with God and others. Those people are God who show us how much we have. The goal is simplicity, to give first and then to live simply from there on. Does simplicity mean I get rid of everything? No, it just means intentionally value what we value most, which can be a few things because there are things that we love to do with others. But it also means removing the things we do not need. So it's time to clean out the closet in order to clean out, clean up our eyes. So I think when it comes to it, practically with new purchases and current possessions, you have to work through some of the following. Do I really need this? Does this thing give me kingdom joy or merely temporary happiness or nothing at all? Do I have to spend all my time maintaining something that I don't enjoy? How much of my time and money do I spend on this item? Can be invested elsewhere. Who needs this more? Who needs this more? It's a very helpful question. Who needs this more? Here's a helpful tip I gave. If you've not used something in a year, it's really not yours anymore. If you've not used something in the last year, it's probably not yours anymore. Why that's helpful is you go through the seasons. You have, yeah, I understand you have a raincoat or a snowboard. But if you've not used it in a year, it's probably not yours. It belongs to someone else. Dallas Ward says, we reveal what we treasure by what we protect, secure, and keep. Jesus says that we are called to treasure others. So what is one way you can use your resources by giving and simplicity for the sake of others? I think a way 
to preface this conversation positively, what can you give up in order to, to serve and give more? Whether it's adoption, border crisis, homelessness, human trafficking, prison ministry, refugee settlement, what can you invest in? Last step towards true financial freedom. We need to walk others out of the prison. Not only do we need to first give ourselves and to learn to live simply, but we need to help others out of the prison. No one can serve two masters. Jesus is helping us. He says, either you will hate the one or love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Mammon is the only false god named the Gospels. And Mammon in that day wasn't necessarily known to be a god. It was a sign of, of God's actually provision and blessing in their life. But many saw it as a goal that took place of God. To be wealthy was a sign of God's blessing. And Jesus is saying, no, the, the goal of wealth absent of God is a curse. It's a God that has taken your identity. It's a God who's taken your life. And he's put us in a prison of self-centricity where the debt of man keeps us there. So the call is through giving and simplicity to walk out of that prison. And the call is also to help others out of that prison. This means that we're not only to be generous to those who don't have, but, in, but also encourage the generosity of others who do have. This doesn't come through combination, but praying together with how God can use our resources for his sake. So what ministry does God want for us together? We have to pray and ask. And, you know, years ago I had a friend of mine who initiated with me. He helped me through so much, through sobriety when it comes to relationships, uh, when it comes through certain addictions. But he also said, hey, man, when are we going to start giving more? Uh, when are we going to start believing that God has so much more for us as we give to others? And it was a convicting conversation. In fact, he was the one who offered me the 10 10 80 rule and he's he said yeah we don't limit to the 10 it's just a starting point and i think about that moment and the freedom we had in that conversation to talk and pray together and i think about this week when i met with a group of guys and it was a great meeting but when we talked about the topic of generosity which was our conversation this week it was one of those conversations that was more quiet than any other conversation we've had it's a quiet topic I already made you all talk about it. But here's a funny question after the fact. What are the reasons we don't talk about generosity? And why don't we pray about it? One of the very next actions Jesus records in Holy Week is he heads in the temple and does the following. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of selling doves. It's written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. And afterward, the blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. It's wild how Mammon in Jesus' day converted the temple into a prison and became the warning. And, and money is a spiritual force that can even control God's house. So I believe our call is to talk about 
generosity and to pray about how God will use our finances, to pray about how God will use the finances for this church for his sake as we come upon our next fiscal year, as we start planning for that, which it's in September where we start planning now. I'd love for us to pray for how God would use our investment for the sake of his kingdom. I'd love for you to be praying for me in this conversation, how we would use God's resources for the sake of others, for our support team that's a, that, that approves a budget, to pray for our church, that we'd be a generous people, to pray um, for Easter, that people will come to know our generous God. Easter is an opportunity to talk about the generosity of God. So let's pray for our church together that we would steward what God's given to us for the sake of honoring God and glorifying God and loving others. That we'd be people who are free to give. That we're in a process. And God sees us in a process and he wants to honor us in that process. That he's not a God of condemnation, he's a God of opportunity. So what does God have for us in this conversation? What does God have for you? Let's pray.